I mentioned last week uh, that our friends David and Charmaine are going to be visiting from uh, Stratford, Ontario. We were together years ago in Toronto uh, for five years, and uh, uh, we love these guys, and they carry such a great anointing. David's going to speak this morning and uh, has got a message all about worship, So, uh, but we're so glad you guys are here. You, Every time you show up, you're just such a, a perfect timing and wonderful anointing to bring. Uh, we're not going to go back into that story, but <laughs> there was one time they were here when it was really, really helpful that they were here, but, <laughs> but we're much better now. <laughs> so Dave, uh, just have, it, have a way with it and, uh, and lead us off into whatever response is appropriate. Thank you. <laughs> Want to say hi, Charmaine? Well, hello, everybody. It's good to see you, and it's great to see lots of new faces, and uh, Truly, we love the hearts of Mark and Jane because they really are a wonderful reflection of who Jesus is, who the Father is, and they are constantly thinking of ways to embody that. And so I want to encourage you as we were praying earlier this morning, I felt like the Lord said that you planted so many good seeds uh, these last few days and that these are seeds he wants to encourage you to keep praying for the seeds that were sown because we know that the birds of air of the air are trying to pick away at the good seed but there was lots of really good soil with the people that came from the community and so be encouraged with what you did you did something very tangible uh, expressing the love of god so that's that's always something to celebrate so well done all of you and uh, I just wanted to say hello, and um, yeah, I just pray that you would receive David's message today, and I just want to say it's a fresh, fresh message that I learned a lot from, just as he shared it with me, so I trust that you will also be encouraged, so bless you, may the Lord prepare your heart, and uh, that this seed would land in your good soil, amen. Well, thank you, love. It's really something when the, the preacher's wife learns something from you. <coughs> <laughs> it is a pleasure to be back here and to spend this time with you. Um, we have dear memories with the Burlinsons, and uh, it's fun to be back. We're on a road trip visiting friends in uh, Indiana, here in South Carolina, and then North Carolina before we head home to Canada where, believe it or not, it's just as hot as it is here and yeah. just as humid and the corn is just as high. And it um, but we're grateful for the invitation and the opportunity. Um, I love that slide that Mark showed about Catch the Fire Values when Charmaine and I were creating the School of Ministry in Toronto. We just thought about, okay, so why, what was it about John and Carol Arnott and their ministry that the Holy Spirit loved so much to land in the way the Holy Spirit did and to just keep on and keep on and keep on and keep on. And we realized it came down to those four things, that if you know God as Father, as a really good Father, and if you can hear the Father's voice for yourself, and if your heart is getting healed up and unburdened from all the stuff that comes at us and through us and, uh, and on us, and if you know the Father, you can hear his voice, and your, heart, your heart's getting healed up to be more and more like his, then you can be trusted with the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Have we seen enough situations where there was a whole lot of power and not enough underneath it to sort of prop it up and keep it on track? Yeah. Right. So God loves those things because then you can be trusted with leadership, you can be trusted with the prophetic, you can be trusted with evangelism, you can be trusted with service and, and, and discipleship and instruction. You're trustworthy people. So this is why we emphasize this so much. One of the other things we, we emphasize is corporate worship. So why do we do this? Why do we have all this equipment? And why do we sing? And why do we play music? And why do we spend so much time um, just doing that? I mean, what's the point of doing that? Why not just flip on the radio or a YouTube channel on with, with worship? Why do we do this together? 
as a community, why do we do the things that we do? Sometimes it's good to, real to think about, so why do we do that? Like, and for so long sometimes. So it comes out of out of the, the vineyard churches. Um, when I was uh, when we came into into the vineyard back in the eighties, mm, we I saw my worlds come together. I was I was raised in a denominational church, and I loved the hymns. I loved the truth. I loved the the adoration and the glory and the, all that sort of stuff. On the other hand, I was a Beatle maniac, and I loved guitars and I loved folk music and Bob Dylan and. Bruce Coburn and all these fascinating, poetic, and I love pop music and you know Motown and all that, all that sort of fun. And through the vineyard, I saw my two worlds converge, where we could have drums in church and guitars in church and all this sort of stuff. I just thought, oh, this is amazing. And I didn't mind that we took so much time and spent so much time on it. I can't remember the messages and the preaching and the teaching from those days, but I love the worship <laughs> because of what it did to my heart and how it opened my mind and it activated my spirit and I could finally let go of all my self-consciousness. It opens us up. So I want to talk about worship in that perspective. Why all the fuss? Like, why do we spend so much time standing? Why do we wave our hands? Why do we, you know wave flags and that sort, of, that sort of thing. I'm jealous of people like that. <coughs> <laughs> I'm an introvert, so it's, it's, it's harder for me. So, so. so I, I want to start with a little bit of perspective, just to open up, up the perspective, because sometimes we develop these habits and we just do it because, because we got, we've been doing it for a while, right? So think about the fact that the sun comes up in the east and it travels across the sky, and it settles in the west. And somehow, magically, the next morning, it comes up again over here in the east, and it moves across the sky again, and it goes down over there. And then, sure as shooting, the next day, the sun comes up way over here again, and comes, right? And of course, cultures and religions had all kinds of explanations. Well, you know, the sun rides a boat, under the earth, and then it pops up over here, and it, it rides a chariot over the... So all kinds of explanations. What we now know is that the sun actually isn't going around us, and the moon is not going around us, and the stars are not swirling around us. <coughs> we are not the center of the universe. Sorry. Charmaine and I were on, on holiday once, and we went to a, an observatory at night, and it was a rooftop observatory, and the air was so dry and so clear, and there was so little light pollution that uh, we were looking at these, you know, big telescopes, at these amazing things that were happening out in space, and <coughs> because the sky was so clear, it was so dark, you could actually watch the stars come up, and you could watch the Milky Way shift across the sky. Now, where we live, there's too much humidity and too much cloud. We, we don't get to see that much. But it suddenly, it, it just s came home that that's not all circling around us. Actually, we are falling towards those stars. Different perspective. And in school, you probably saw the models. There's a sun in the middle, and there's like a big giant pancake or a frisbee with all these planets <laughs> going around this way, right? That's not actually how it works, because we, we are spinning and going around the sun like this, but it's not like this. It's actually like this. So actually, the sun is moving this way, and we are all going this way, around the sun. So we're actually moving in a corkscrew through space, and the sun, with its radiation as gravity, is vacuuming and cleaning space in front of us so we don't get hit by some big blob of rock or star or something like that. So we are actually spinning in a corkscrew around a star, a minor star, an average star on the underside, whichever way is up, underside of this galaxy we call the Milky Way, 
and it's all swirling around. So we are swirling or corkscrewing all over the place like this. And the galaxy itself, our galaxy that we call the Milky Way, is moving through space as well at an un incomprehensible speed. And you've, you've heard about the James Webb Telescope, which is now hurtling through space and sending us lots of information that's really upsetting scientists. Because what they had figured out thus far turns out to be, well, we need to rethink about some of the things that we learned. One of the great things about science is eventually they're willing to change their minds. So we wind up with a galaxy. Could we have a galaxy where, and, and the, the pictures that are coming back are freaking out the astrophysicists and the astronomers because they didn't realize all that was out there. They thought it was just dark. They th thought it was just black. And every one of those smudges is, is another Milky Way. So there are billions of Milky Ways, and each one of those Milky Ways galaxies are containing contain billions of stars. And wouldn't you know it, they find one right in the middle that looks like a question mark. <laughs> kind of ironic. So here we are, riding around on a little glob of molten rock and, 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 and metal. And it's got a, a cooler crust around the outside, about the thickness of an apple skin, mostly covered with water, doing this crazy motion. And we humans are just kind of scratching at the surface and living our lives. Living and dying and loving and all that sort of stuff. And all of this was held together by the will of a loving Father God who created and held and holds everything together by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, incarnated through Jesus, a human being who is now a member of the Trinity. Jesus who lived, who died, who rose, and ascended to be back at the right hand of the Father, in whom we live and move and have all of our being. Go, okay, Selah. Let's just park that for a few minutes, and I'll come back to that, back to it. Because we live in this incomparable, incomprehensible universe, but we get to live our lives as if the most important thing is where the sun is and where to plant the tomatoes. Now, transition here. When God rescued the Hebrews and sent Moses to reach them, they had been in Egypt for 400 years. 400 years since Joseph and his family came down to live with them. Think about 400 years, four centuries, the number of people who were born, lived, had kids, and died in 400 years. Depending how you count generations, that could be 10 generations, that could be 20 generations. It's a lot of people coming and going in slavery in Egypt. And as slaves, they were subject to every kind of abuse, every kind of work, every kind of human selfishness. And yet they maintained um, a sense of, of, of people, a sense of purpose, a sense of collective, etc. Because they knew who they were and they knew who the real Egyptians were. But they were slaves. Basically, slaves are equipment. They're just livestock. They are um, appliances you know, for cleaning the house or building a, building a road or building a building or plowing a field or designing... Uh, you know, smelting jewelry or, or carving wood. <coughs> They're basically machinery. They were considered to be less than this. And according to the Egyptians, if you were a slave in this life, you're going to be a slave in the next life. Sorry about that. So a lot of their broke, a lot of their identity had been broken down to the lowest common 
denominator. They were property, and they had no decision-making. They had no responsibility. They were just living machines, working. And you know, when, when God brought the law, he invented a day of rest. He even invented the long weekend. Because the slaves in Egypt didn't have that. Every day was work day. Unless there was a pagan religious feast, in which case they got to change things up. But basically, there were no days off if you were a slave. A slave is a slave is a slave. So, Moses talks to, talks to the people, and God does all this crazy, traumatic, nasty stuff by saying to Pharaoh, are you going to let him go? 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 And finally culminated in a widespread death. Right. So, they've been sprung out of Egypt. They've been, the people, Egyptians are so glad to see them gone. They're throwing money and throwing jewelry and throwing fabric and throwing gold and possessions, etc. Just get out, just get out, just get out. And then they wind up cornered and God has to pry open the Red Sea for them to pass out pass through and get to the other side. Crazy, mind-blowing, unexpected. They, had n they didn't see this coming. It's spectacular. And then they go into the desert. <coughs> Not exactly the promised land. But they make a stop at a place called Mount Sinai. And in the Jewish mindset, Sinai was a wedding cloud of God's presence comes down on the mountain like a wedding hoopah. And there is a, a groom who comes to the bride. There is a wedding contract and there are vows and there are promises and they both agree. Yes, we're going to do life together. We're we are going to journey together. And our spiritual head is going to lead us through. And there's a celebration with family and friends and food and drink and music and dancing and stories and laughter and the promise of this new life. It was a wedding. So God called, God's glory comes to them and he called for them all to come up on the mountain. But remember, these are slaves who had just seen all this crazy traumatic stuff and they said no. He said, we're not going up there. Like, we've seen what, ha what happens <laughs> when you get too close. Moses, you go and just let us know what he wants. Like, tell us what the demands are. Because in religion, it's demands. You better or else. So a loving God calls them up together, and he gets Moses and, and Joshua. Can you imagine how disappointed a loving God, after all this stuff, after all the things I did for you, right? <laughs> after all the things that he's, he's done and brought, brought them through in order to bring them into freedom, and they say, ah, they're not, they're not even going to make eye contact. Like, well, would that hurt? Of course it would. Disappointment. And then later on, the Lord says, okay, who wants to work with me? Like, who, who, who wants to come to the shop and we'll actually do all this stuff together? And all the tribes were, were all lined up, and 11 of them went like this. And the Levites said, oh, well, okay, I, I, I guess we will. So he wants 12 tribes, and he gets one. And then there's the, then there's the marriage contract with the... Uh, the Jews would call the Torah or the law or we would call it the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Now remember, until this time, there was no Bible. There was no scripture. When Joseph was in prison, he didn't have the 23rd Psalm to read and, and comfort himself. Abraham might have had some stories, vague stories from his days in Mesopotamia about how they got there but they would have been really kind of vague and really colored by local culture. Abraham did not have the Bible. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and 400 years of people, generations, 
did not have any scripture. Think about that. All they had to go on were hunches and visions and dreams and hearing voices. No scripture, no gospels, no great advice in the epistles. Nothing to go on but what they think this nameless God wanted. Now, God actually gave Hagar a name, the God who actually sees me. But other than that, Moses had to ask, so who shall I say sent me? And God's answer was, it's me. I am. Tell them it's me. They had to learn his name. So, at, at the age of 80, Moses is out in the desert with these broken people who had every possible nasty, terrible thing done to them, who had gone through all of this, and all they had were some oral traditions, some generation-to-generation -generation stories to go on. And essentially, the Hebrews were a people group. They were a slave class, but... In a lot of ways, they were still Egyptian. They ate Egyptian foods, and they, they raised Egyptian crops. They used Egyptian equipment. They raised Egyptian livestock. They learned Egyptian trades and Egyptian art, Egyptian engineering and uh, Egyptian building, Egyptian military, Egyptian luxuries, Egyptian politics, Egyptian law and punishment, Egyptian class and society, Egyptian family life, of which they were only spectators, and Egyptian religion. Remember, Joseph married the daughter of an Egyptian priest. So where do you think they had the wedding? It wasn't in a synagogue. It wasn't in a church. They were steeped in Egyptian mythology and life and all the demands of being a slave. They have an Egyptian mindset that just said, all you, all you can do is survive and get through this life, and there's going to be more of the same on the other side. The Nile went up, the Nile went down. The gods were up there making crazy decisions, and we just hope to stay out of trouble. They were under rulers and dynasties who were constantly fighting and killing each other. They lived in an empire that we called civilization. And it was under those conditions that they loved and they hated and they hoped and they suffered and they survived. But then there was this shocking series of events. Now all of a sudden, boom, they're out in the open. Nobody's around. And we're they're with this crazy god who does these crazy things that nobody saw coming. And now we're out here alone with that. No wonder they didn't go up the mountain and said, Moses, you just, just let us know what, what, he's, what he's expecting, and we'll, we'll try to keep up. So God got them out of Egypt. Now he has to get Egypt out of them. We have broken people who are property, having to learn how to be people. Rescued, but now they're alone. They're out in the wilderness. No one to rescue them this time. What is this re new relationship actually going to look like? How are we going to do things? We, d we don't even have onions and leeks anymore. They have to learn how to live like humans again. They have to get to know this God. There's going to be a complete reset, a completely new approach to everything. They have to learn what is freedom, what is responsibility, what is right and wrong, what is purpose, what, I what gives your life meaning. So at Sinai, they get this five-book wedding gift. Right, so we have the book of Genesis, which is basically the backstory. So what did Abraham say when he, etc.? What happened at the Tower of Babel? Or what about that flood thing that happened? 
So God dictates to Moses and Joshua up on the mountain, and, he, and they write it all down. So it, Genesis is the whole backstory up until when Joseph and the family went down into Egypt. And then they were living the book of Exodus. They're writing this stuff as they went. Right? So Exodus is the story of how God sprung them out of slavery and then how they moved and, and they had to keep updating until it was time to go into the promised land with Joshua. Leviticus. Leviticus was the law written for the priests, for the Levites, to explain, this is how we're going to do my relationship with you, and this is how you're going to learn to live with each other. Not as property, not as being forever told what to do, and don't think about it, just do. So it's essentially a new religion with entirely new laws. It's a new civilization, starting from scratch. Then there's the Book of Numbers, which is a whole lot of data, a whole lot of numbers, and a whole lot of specifications on how to precisely do things so that they'll work. Not just because I said so, but because so they'll work. And then in Deuteronomy, which literally means the second reading, I'm sure, yeah, I know, here you have multiple readings of the law of legislation when they're passed, right? So Deuteronomy is the second reading of Leviticus. And it covers a whole lot of circumstances and d various applications. Well, what if we got one of these? Well, what if he did that? Or what if she didn't mean to, etc. So all those exceptions are sort of unpacked in Deuteronomy. So these are the five books. For the Jews, wedding isn't one ceremony on one day with a, with a dance afterwards. A wedding was a whole season. So the wedding that starts at Mar Mount Sinai for the exchange of vows but it's a whole season of learning to live together again between the bride and the groom. So we have a complete re-education. Now we call the core of it the Ten Commandments. I think of it as ten ways to live happily ever after with a God who loves you. Start w starting with the first one. Forget all these gods with dog heads and bird wings and all that sort of stuff. It's just me. It's me. I'm here, and I'm here for you. And he's creative, and he's kind, and he's just. Suggestion number two. If you really want a good life, be good to your mom and your dad. The family had to be, the family was so broken down children sold off. Maybe they don't ever get to see each other again. Who knows? But the whole family structure had been so broken down that no command number two had to be, be good to your mom and be good to your dad. And then life will go really well. But they had to be told that. <coughs> and then uh, you have all the other ones. Like they had to be told, don't murder. That must have been an awkward moment for Moses. A murderer? He says, oh, oh, yeah, good one. I'm, I'm, I'm going to write that one down. <laughs> they came out of slavery with no freedom and all this chaos, and they had to be told, don't steal. They had to be told, don't be jealous of other people's stuff. Don't be lusting after somebody else's wife. Don't sleep around. They had to actually have this all explained, and they're all thinking, oh, Oh, oh. So when we hear thou shalt not, <coughs> what God's really saying is stop it. Don't do that to each other, and they shouldn't be doing those things to you. Because they had lived their lives of all these things happening to them. Remember when Potiphar's wife went after Joseph, it was because he was a slave and she could. So when he said no, that was all kinds of different wrong to an Egyptian. A slave saying no. So God has to organize this rabble of people that are wandering around out, out in the desert. So he, he gives them a, a physical layout for the camp with, tel with 12 tribes and there's a 
uh, there's a pillar of smoke at night to cool them with shade and a pillar of fire at night to keep them warm. And they're all to be gathered around God's tangible, physical presence when they move on. And he gives them really detailed um, instructions on what this tabernacle or this dwelling place, this place of meeting, the tent of the congregation is going to look like. They need a center to focus because they'd come out of a, a culture with temples. Right? They also called it the tabernacle or the dwelling place of testimony, which means your history, your experience, the reality that you've come through. And then later on it, uh, in the Bible, they refer to it as the temple of the Lord. But God is very specific about what it's going to look like, about who's going to do what, what they're going to wear, the order that they do things, when, t when they're going to do it in the, in the year, etc. They had, they had to be told everything. Why? Because they had never learned responsibility. They had never learned freedom. They had learned consequences. So, God gives them this physical, tangible expression, which in, in the New Testament, they refer, um, the tabernacle is referred to an earthly expression of heavenly realities, spiritual realities. So, we have the tabernacle. Now, this is an actual photograph of Moses' tabernacle out in the desert. <laughs> Just kidding. It's, it's not. <coughs> but this is what their temple was going to look like. And the tribes had very specific placement around, so they were told, and then they couldn't fight about who gets to, who gets to be where because it's already been laid out for them. And there are six or seven different ways you can study this stuff and it, when you start unpacking it's almost like a rabbit hole because there's just so much symbolism and, and truth in there. But basically the overview is that there is a, a perimeter fence of, of cloth and then there was a big tent and there were a couple of fixtures with the tribes all around. And the tribes, because it was a 15 foot fence, they could just see the top of the tent. So the perimeter is 150 feet long. So think a football field and a half. No, half of a football field. Half of a football field. So to, um, from the goal line to the 50-yard line. It's that long and half that wide, 75 feet wide. And there's, there's an entrance at the east end, and it's pretty wide. It's like 30 feet wide. Why would the entrance have to be 30 feet wide? Because the amount of traffic that's going to be going in and out of there. People and animals and all kinds of stuff going back and forth. And then we have this layered tent. The tent is 45 feet long, 15 feet tall, 15 feet wide. And in the tent, you have a, what they call a holy place, which was 30 feet by 15 feet with a 15-foot ceiling. And then there's this, the holy of holies, which was 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet. It, it was a cube, basically. This is not the first time there's been a portable temple. Lots of pagan religions had tents that they would move around and go on the road and do the dog and pony show in, in, in religious circles. So why, why would God give them a portable, mobile temple that they had already seen or heard of because he needed to give them something kind of familiar to work with? Wasn't afraid of that. And there's a lot of stuff that goes on. So in the out outer, outer court here, the big yellow square, it's open air, there are linen curtains, and there's noise, like the kids playing outside, the families squabbling, you know, the, the work that they're doing, etc. They could hear the, all of that. They didn't have solid walls like we do in church. So all the community sounds, open air, if it's raining, it's raining. And and when the Levites came in to minister, and they're bringing sheep, and they're bringing oxen, and they're bringing 
wheat and, 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 and stuff, it's all coming in through, through the one gate at the one end. And the first thing they come to is a giant hibachi, this, this bronze altar. And there's smoke, and there's heat, and there's flame, and there's stuff burning on it. There's stuff roasting on it. So you get the sounds, and you get the tools clanging, etc. It's not silent, but there was no music. There was no music in worship until four or five hundred years later when David brought it in. So it was silent. Well, not silent, because cattle make noise. It wasn't tidy, because you would have all, where you have livestock, you have manure, right? And all the sounds and all that sort of stuff and the, and the slaughtering and the blood and the skinning and the burning and all that sort of stuff. It was pretty elaborate and the, and the Bible has very specific instructions on how to do this, right? So there's a lot of flesh and blood and there's sacrifice and there's grain burning and all these sorts of stuff that are happening at the bronze altar. And then there's the brass, brass labor, that little <laughs> circle there which was a big wash basin. It was water to wash because of all that they were having to deal with. And the staff were wearing linen, and they have adornment, and they have special hats, and they have jewels, um, etc., to make them feel dignified, to make them feel like more than just property. They're being honored for their, for their willingness to serve. And there's a whole menu and there's a whole schedule for the whole nations, for the, for the Levites themselves, for every individual, how to kill the animals, how to bleed the animals, how to skin them, that they get, they get butchered, they get burned, or they get grilled. So we have this altar for living gifts, like Abel's living gifts, and secondarily grains like Cain brought, but mostly for these live animals. And the best parts, the fattiest parts, are reserved for the Lord to be completely consumed, and he likes it. He actually likes the smell of a barbecue. And depending how people came, uh, how the sacrifices came in the gate, like the people didn't come in, just the Levites. But depending how the sacrifices came in, that were brought to the Lord, they could either be for thanks because of how well things have gone and how life is good, et cetera, et cetera, or in repentance and penance because something went wrong and I have to make up for it. There's, I have to pay a fine. <laughs> so they're coming in either with thanks for provision and for celebration, with, with praise and thanksgiving, or to make amends and to know that they're forgiven and to know that they're restored and they get to start again and try to do better. They get to confess and repent and forgiveness, depending on the needs of the worshiper. God is not going to physically eat this stuff. So who is it for, really? It's for the person to know that they've been able to deal with stuff. So then there's this labor to cleanse and to refresh and to prepare for a closer encounter. How many like, how many have had that experience where you go into a Japanese restaurant and they give you the little little hot towelettes where you wash your hands and maybe wash your face? It's refreshing. And they do that for their guests as part of their hospitality. So we have a place to wash up. Because you don't want to show up for a, for a job interview with a stain on your shirt, right? Y you're going to be self-conscious and you're going to be awkward and you're not going to be at your best. You know, the words are going to come out kind of funny and, oh, you forget to tell them this thing because you're self-conscious. So the labor is there so they wouldn't have to be self-conscious before going into the tent. So they're coming from smoke and fire and tools and animal and poop and there's, etc. It's a lot of work, but having done business with God out here, now things are settled and it's time to go in and actually meet. So into the tent of meeting. So we have two rooms. They come in from the east side, and there are three things in there. God asks them to create 
based on their experience in Egypt, in jewelry and craftsmanship and carpentry and all that, and weaving and all that sort of stuff, three objects <coughs> in what they call the holy place. There are multiple layers of heavy waterproofing and soundproofing, and it's cool, and it's silent, and it's dark, and these things all need regular attendance. There's a maintenance schedule for these things. So th the priests have to go in there every day and take care of stuff. One of them is the menorah, which has seven lamps. So this is the built, this is the part they go in. Remember, there's, there's a roof, so there's no ambient light. There's a menorah in there with seven oil lamps in there. To us, we see that it represents the spirit and the revelation and the light that the Lord brings into our lives. And it's the only thing lighting the room. Seven oil lamps. Now, when Jerusalem was conquered in 70 AD, the Romans stole the menorah. And this is a, a statue. Uh, it's, it's the Arch of Titus in Rome. You can see it the any day now. Anytime you go there, you can see it. So this is the way they depicted the menorah that they, that they stole out of the temple when, when Jerusalem fell. <coughs> so that's probably what it looked like. So you have ambient lighting. And then you have a table that's laid out with fresh baked bread. Who likes the smell <coughs> of fresh baked bread? Even if you're, lack, you're gluten intolerant, you st I'm sure the, 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 sound, the, the smell is pretty attractive. And we know that the bread of life, you know, the scripture, the daily manna, the Bible is there for us, laid out on a table. So, and it's abundant. There's lots of provision. There's lots of it. And then there's the incense altar. And the altar doesn't do anything except burn incense. The only purpose is to make things smell nice. It's useless, but it's beautiful. And this, to us, represents prayer. So we have the light of revelation by the Holy Spirit. We have bread, which is, which is Jesus. And we have prayer, the prayers of the saints being released. And there's all this ministry and all this maintenance to make sure that they're going to be doing this for a long time. So there's a whole schedule on how they, next one. And they would move back and forth and make sure there's oil for the lamp and make sure there's incense that somebody has ground up and actually actually made that, that will be burned so that the, the atmosphere is constant. And then the bread is brought in fresh because stale bread is not fun. And then there's an ornate curtain and on the other side is the Holy of Holies. And it's, it's only got one thing in it, a cab, a cabinet, a box, a gold-covered box, about yai by yai by yai, with poles for carrying it. So you have this little room. So three foot nine, by two foot by two foot three inches by two feet by three inches. And it's covered with gold and it has a solid gold lid and it has poles so nobody touches the box itself. And it's finely crafted by these Israelites who used to be Hebrew slaves who learned how to do gold working as they were slaves. Now this isn't the first time you had one of these gold boxes. The Egyptians had these too. So Pharaoh, uh, for instance, King Tut, had an ark as well. His had a dog god instead, but ours has angels with poles so it could be, so it could be moved around and it would be full, full of you know, memorabilia for, for the Pharaoh. But back to the Ark of the Covenant, and God's design. This is the this is the testimony. This box has the tablets that Moses wrote out what we call the commandments on, the ten ways to live live in love with a loving God. And when they designed all this sort of stuff, God said, I want you to put in this thing the tablets that I will give you. So God has already created, they didn't have these tablets and say, 
well, where are we going to put it? I guess we need a cabinet, so let's put them in the cabinet. No, God gave them the cabinet first before he even gave them the tablets of the law. So God is already planning ahead what they really need to hear and how they're going to handle it, how they're going to carry it, how they're going to move it around. Right? The tablets that I will give you. So inside this box, inside the ark, are the, the, the tablets that Moses had to carve out because he broke the first set after the rebellion. And they also keep before the Lord, so before the pre Lord's presence, Aaron's flowering rod. It was, a, it was a, a wooden rod that he used, and it flowered, representing purpose, direction, and life. And a gold pot with manna, God's daily provision. And on top of the ark is what they call the mercy seat, with gold cherubim covering their eyes, and according to Jewish tradition, there was a blue flame of God's presence between the wings. And that blue flame would be the only light within the room. Other than that, perfectly dark. Totally black inside. But the blue flame of God's presence. And once a year, one priest could go in and he had to wear bells so they could hear that he was still moving around and alive, and they had tied a rope around his ankle in case he got smoked because his heart wasn't pure. And they would have to drag him out from under the curtain. And, that got, and the guy who got to go in had to be chosen by lottery. Why would they, chose, why would they roll dice to figure out who's going to go in there? Who's going to go in there with this God, <laughs> right? So they had to roll dice to figure out who's going to be. Nobody was going, ooh, ooh, me, me. I'm going to go into that, high, into that electric generator conversion plant thing, and I might not come out alive. So we had the whole elaborate system. The tabernacle was a model or a shadow or an illustration. It was a living example of spiritual reality. So why is this relevant to us? Why do we read about this? How can, what's the point of studying this? There are implications for the way that we do worship here within the room. It may not be you know, <laughs> 50 yards by, by 25 yards, but we have a space. So. All of us campers, as we're walking through life with, with God, there's a sense of God's dwelling place at the center of the community. So gather the people around. Be with your tribe, your people, your, your extended families. Do life together. And then here are the things that you're going to need. Not demands, but he says, enter his gates with... We enter his courts with? Why? Does he need it? Like, d is he insecure? Does his, his ego say, I hope you appreciate all this. Does Thanksgiving feel good? Does praise feel good? It's for you to feel good about coming to God. With everybody else, with your family and with your friends. I love the fact that people gather together and just socialize and it's hard to get them to sit down and focus because we're going to start the worship. Gonna start. Or after a meeting when people linger and linger and linger and somebody wants to lock up but people are too busy chatting and drinking coffee. He likes that. So, we all gather together and it's all about us and we're going to meet with God, etc. And we, you come in with praise and thanksgiving and Tempo is going to be expressed in praise and thanksgiving, right? You don't give praise and thanksgiving by, oh, I feel like that stain, right? There's going to be a tempo. There's going to be volume. It's going to be at its loudest, probably a major key. The tone of the lyrics are going to be about, here we are, his people, and he, so we and he, and then we go into the outer court and we get to do business. And depending who you are and how things have gone this week, 
Maybe you're coming in with thanksgiving and praise and offering because it's life is good and things went well. Or, you know, oh, there's this thing and, you know, I'm really sorry, but God, would you please forgive me? So we bring a sacrifice of confession, confession and forgiveness. And he receives it. And it's actually pleasing to him. Why? Because he knows it's good for you. How many know confession is good for the soul? <laughs> right? And to know that you're still received and that you are forgiven and you get to try again. So there's fire to consume whatever it is that you, said you, you came in with and there's water to cleanse and to refresh. So we bring tithes and offering because he's, he's provided so well for us and it's grilling and roasting and it smells like a barbecue. And the, and the crew is busy. They're on shift and it's noisy and there's smoke and there's blood and there's messy and there's poop and all that stuff. But he likes it and it's, a, it's, a, it's a, like an incense pleasing to the Lord. And we shift from, Lord, there's this thing or, Lord, you did this thing, right? So, it's now us and you, or me and you. So the grammar changes in the outer court. The volume cha changes. The tempo slows down a bit because there's a bit of work to be done here, a little bit of dealing, doing, doing some business with God. The lyrics and the tone change, and maybe the, maybe the sound of our worship shifts a bit. You know, maybe the major chords, but maybe some minor chords in there as well. And now it's date night. So we're going to now go into the holy place, having dealt with all the stuff. So we go in, and it's quiet, and there's candlelight, and there's fresh baking, and there's perfume. The pace changes. There's care and attention to the way things go. It's a romantic atmosphere. Why? Because God likes it, and because he wants us to feel the same. So we receive enlightenment from the menorah. We receive w nourishment with the bread. And we respond with the incense of our prayers. The tempo changes again. The volume changes again. The tonality shifts again. And we shift from we and I to him and you and you and me to, Lord, this is... This is the provision that I really need with you and from you. It gets very, very personal inside there. And our worship starts getting very personal and very heartfelt. And we, we hear things from God and we see things, we realize things about, about God and we offer prayer and worship. This is why we do this. And then there's the holy of holies, the holiest place and it is silent. It is the quietest. There is this testimony, and there are reminders of, of God's goodness and the things that he did to get us this far. And there's no activity, just God's presence. We just be. And it's less and less about us, and it's just not, e not even him, it's you, Lord. He is the only light Less of me, more of you, Lord. We have personal testimony. We have provision. We've, we've done all the remembrance, all that sort of stuff. It's just about presence. And that is how God was teaching how to get Egypt out of those people. And this is what we do every week when we get together. We gather with, with thanksgiving. We gather with praise. And we deal with God, how it's been going. But we come to him for, Lord, would you touch my heart? Would you reveal your love to me? Would you, like, feed me with your scripture, etc.? Lord, I just love you. We offer prayer. And then we come to a place of pure presence and just intimacy with him where it's just, just, just. So this is why we spend the amount of time and the amount of preparation doing this. Because every week we come in and there's a little bit of Egypt in us that needs to be jettisoned. Or we come in and there's some thanksgiving to be offering. 
and he's trying to shape us. Now, from our human perspective, whether you're planting tomatoes or whatever, there's a huge cosmos swirling. So if I look at the sun from the perspective of I need to plant my tomatoes somewhere, or I can look at all these things from God's perspective, uh, this huge, massive, swirling thing that we are actually all a part of. So there are times when we can look at this stuff and say, why all the hoops and hurdles? Why did God make it so hard, and how come only one person, a man, gets to come in there one time a week, and he has to roll the dice in order to get to do it? How about we turn that telescope around? And we realize that if God really is present and at the center, the whole thing is an invitation. Get the people around. Come on in. So, are you coming to party or are you coming to make up and get forgiveness for something? You got to burn some stuff off or you're giving giving a gift of thankfulness? You feel like you need to wash up a bit? Well, come on in. So we're in, invited in, and I have everything that you need. I have light and revelation. I have bread and provision and sustenance. I, uh, there's an opportunity for you to just open your express in prayer just for the sake of the beauty of it. And then if I can't have the whole nation, if, I can't have the, if I'm only going to get one tribe, if I'm only going to get, will somebody please just come Can I get one person once a year to come in with their heart pure enough to to be able to stand in my presence? Can I please have that? It's a whole reprogramming, a whole change of mindset. We, as little Egyptians, come in and and we're thinking, hey, things are great, or ooh, things didn't go so well. But I have these needs, but I can come in and be just face-to-face present. And God is saying, will you come? Will you come? Will you come? Will you just be with me once a year? And if you have to throw a lottery, well, it's not too flattering, but please, will somebody come in? That's the God who is revealing himself to us. So, it's not hoops and hurdles, it's What do you need? What do you need? What do you need? Just come closer. Come closer. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Come closer. He wanted the entire nation. And now we are a nation of priests. We are all a royal priesthood. And we can all come walking in. Because Jesus has done so much. And the Holy Spirit is holding the whole thing together. And we can have those spirit-to-spirit, face-to-face experiences with God in the Holy of Holies. We can do it every week as a community. You can do it at home in your closet. You can do it in your car as you drive. And he's right there. Not because of all the stuff you did for him. Not because he demands. He came as a groom to his bride. And there was a celebration and a wedding a season of celebration and instruction on how to live life and how to live well. And he's just saying, can I have my people? Is somebody willing? The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth looking for somebody whose heart is actually turned towards him. Imagine what it's like with so many people saying no or I have other things. Let's pray. Oh, Father. We're so loving, so kind, so thorough. You just thought of everything that we needed. When you called us out, of our slavery and our bondage, out of our own Egypt. And you have all this patience, all this provision, 
all these details to help us get those bits of Egypt out of us, out of our minds and out of our thinking, out of our hearts and out of our woundings, out of our misconceptions, out of our experiences, or the things that we grew up with or things that we grew into, all the things that we've done and all the things that have been done to us. And you've seen it all, and yet, Lord, you gather us to become more and more like Jesus. To hear what the Father is saying, to see what the Father is doing, to know your Father's will for us. That Jesus made possible that we could be filled with the Holy Spirit so that we can do it in your strength and not ours. So, Lord, we worship you. You are worthy. You are just worth everything. And, you get, and yet you gave everything to give us worth. Father, we worship you. Jesus, we worship you. Holy Spirit, we worship you. And we thank you that you have led us to the place where worship is for us just so that we can be close to you and experience your presence for ourselves. So, Lord, would you remove the veil from our eyes? Would you remove the plugs from our ears? Lord, as we surrender offense and as we celebrate your goodness, as we come to you for enlightenment, as we come to you for nourishment, as we come to you to offer our prayers for the sake of our families and our friends and our, our needs and our country and our world. But Lord, you are the goal. Your presence is the goal at the very core. At the very core. We thank you for the mercy that would draw us and make a way for us. Father, I ask that by your Holy Spirit that you would come and that you would just touch every mind. Help us to think with the mind of Christ. Come with your Spirit to refresh our spirits. Lord, would you come and strengthen our bodies? Would you heal joints and muscles and tendons? Would you heal chemical balances? Would you restore your original beautiful design for these bodies, these beautiful people that you delight in and invite and invite and invite again? So in the name of the Father who adores you, in the name of the Holy Spirit who loves spending every moment with you, no matter what, in the name of the Son, who gave everything to make everything possible for you. I bless you to prosper, spirit, soul, and body. I bless your spirit to come fully alive, to be fully opened. I bless your mind to think the thoughts of God. I bless your heart to beat with his love for you and then for others. And I bless your bodies for strength and energy and resilience and stamina and endurance. I bless you for every good and perfect gift that comes from a loving Father. So through this week, remember that you are a living sacrifice prepared by God for good purposes because he chose you, because he wants you, because he wants you to know him. He has made a way, and the way's name is Jesus. So I bless you for this week. I bless you in your fellowship. I bless you in your families and friendships. I bless you in your finances, in, your wor in the work of your hands, to prosper and thrive in every way. Amen and amen. If you feel like you need help with worship, your ability to connect 
with God's invitation. Your ability to do business with God or to celebrate life in God. Or your ability to hear his voice, to receive his revelation and receive his nourishment. We would love to pray for you individually. So we'll dismiss you for now. But if you would like personal prayer, we'd be very happy. And we are very willing and ready to pray with you individually as well for breakthrough in worship, a life of worship that will reflect everything that he's given us, to, everything that he's laid out for us, to live a life that is truly life. So God bless you. Thank you for being so patient <laughs> and tracking with me in this mystery. And uh, we'd be happy, happy to pray for you or hug somebody on the way out. Thank you so much, David. That's rich food, isn't it? Beautiful. So, yeah, come on forward and uh, ask David and Charmaine to pray with you. I'm going to ask Sherry and Carol and Robert and Jamie just to be available if others want prayer as well. And um, God bless you. We'll see you next week. <laughs>